There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Jason Castle, a family law attorney in Phoenix with Jayberg Wilk, and he is obviously working on all the different aspects of family law from divorce to child custody to cohabitation agreements and everything in between. We had a great conversation that went from the truth and the misconceptions about each of those things and the rise in importance of such things as cohabitation agreements. You can find more information about this topic at Jayberg's website, which I included in the show notes. And you can also find Jason on all of his social media, which are also in the show notes. So thanks as always for listening. Remember to tell a friend. And that's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me always is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Hello, sir. Helping us move from awareness to action today is Jason Castle. And I don't know if people realize this. I certainly didn't. But one of these happens every 36 seconds, 2,400 times a day, 16,800 times a week, 876,000 times a year. So long story short, business is booming for our friend Jason Castle, who works in family law and the statistics are dealing with divorce. So Jason, my first question is, whose fault is it, man or woman? (laughs) Always the woman. (laughs) Uh, I will say, uh, I will put a slight spin on your statistics. Okay. And the spin is... Well, I I got them off the internet. And I'm not doubting those numbers. On the Googles. He used the Googles. (laughs) The Googles is a a fascinating resource. Uh, But... Of those cases, typically attorneys are only representing roughly about 8% of the cases. Okay. So roughly somewhere around 90% of those cases do not have an attorney involved. Mm. So that's a number that usually surprises people. They assume you have to have an attorney for every divorce. Um, And, you know, maybe I'm a little biased and I think you should have an attorney. At least consult with one. Right. Right. for any divorce, um, but you know, most divorces do not occur with an attorney involved. And in fact, that affects our process as well. If you care to ask me questions about that later, I'd be happy to comment. So walk us through, um, I think probably our listeners really want to know what are the really, what do you see as the main reasons for divorce? Is it just uh, lifestyle changes? Is it cheating? Is it money? Like what is it? Um, I think the honest answer to that is a combination of all of the above. I think that Um, from a very realistic standpoint, um, the, the relationship when it begins is fun and exciting and and you have, for lack of a better term, you have all this lust and passion Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, in some regards you get the, the blinders put on and so you don't necessarily pay attention to all the little things that are going on in the relationship. And then as time goes on, you start to see some of those things. And so um, that is part of it. The other part of it is, is one way or another, we continue to evolve. Um, we're always evolving. And, and so 
we evolve at different levels. And so when you put two people together and they're evolving sometimes at different rates and sometimes in different directions and that causes them to move in different directions which may not be in the same road. And you look at yourselves, you know, at some point in time down the future and the things that you two were doing, um, you know, when you started the relationship and the things that you're doing now may not even be together. And so um, I believe that those type of situations is what leads to the other things that you were talking about. Affairs, um, just the, the lack of connection, the lack of a relationship. And so um, I, I think it's a collection of everything that it gets blamed as, but I, the bottom line is, is, is the, the connection that's there in the beginning isn't maintained. Mm. Mm. Folks getting married too young, you know, they haven't figured themselves out and they try to figure it out together and that never works out too well. Well, I, 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 <clears throat> I don't know that I'm a good or bad example of that, but uh, I got married when I was uh, uh, officially married when I was 21, had a kid when I was 21, and uh, was married for 21 years. Was that like a shotgun wedding kind of a deal or... Well, it depends on how you define shotguns, and we're no shotguns involved. <laughs> Is that a horribly uh, offensive question? Uh, however, uh, there was a child on the way, and so um, um, it, it definitely um, uh, expedited the process. Mm. And it moved so a little quicker. We uh, we ended up getting married, and we made a good run at it for 21 years. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> are, are there stats? And I, I'm sure, yes, there are stats on, on everything, but... Are there statistics that say folks get married in their 20s have a higher rate versus folks that get married in their 30s or 40s? You know, um, I'm probably the worst person you can ask for that because I believe there's a a number that you can make it say whatever you want. Yeah. Mm. And so um, are there numbers out there that probably support that position? I would say yes. Um, I've also seen statistics and... and and I don't know how reliable the numbers are, but I've seen statistics that say that arranged marriages are just as successful mm. as, you know, you picking your own partner. So um, does it make sense logically that a couple that would get married young would be more inclined to get divorced than a couple that has, you know, had some life experiences under their belt before they decide to do that? Logic would say yes, Um I don't know if the numbers actually play that out, but I've seen statistics that support that statement. Yeah. And as I sort of ask that, I, I wrote down some more numbers. Um, what, what I read that is that 90% of folks married before they're 50, and of that, 40 to 50% get divorced. But second marriages, 60% of those result in divorce, and third marriages, 73% result in divorce. So obviously, they're older when they're getting married the second and third time, but the incidence of divorce is considerably higher. So, well, I mean, you've done it once, right? And so uh, the process isn't as scary the second, third, and That's good fourth time. Right, so right. Uh, it's like ripping off a bandaid. It kind of is, and, and you know, you learn some lessons after that first one. You know, um, the reality is when you're in your twenties and you're doing this, nobody has anything, and you know, you're kind of like, we're in this together. We're going to see what we can do. When you get into your 40s and 50s, hopefully you've accumulated a little bit of wealth and maybe you have some property or you have something of value. And so you get a prenup and, you know, that eliminates a lot of that fight. And so now all of a sudden, 
you know, you're not dividing up everything. You're only dividing up, you know, the little things that you've accumulated, assuming Together, that yeah. uh, um, mm -hmm. your prenup doesn't already identify all of that as well. Yeah. Looking at uh, prenups, what, what states are the most lenient and what is the, where would it suck to get married and have everything taken away from you? California? Uh, yeah, that would be my guess. Uh, that would be my guess. Uh, however, um, I would say uh, that to the individual, every state sucks. Whenever you're having to give up your assets, mm. the stuff that you've worked That's for, to you personally, it sucks. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny because I just had a um, client come in two weeks ago now um, and a... a individual had a prenup and, and um, this individual is making a lot of money and it just so happens that uh, uh, their marriage is a relatively short duration, less than a year, and, and pursuant to their prenup, she's going to give what many of us would consider a very large sum of money. But to him, he was, he was perfectly okay with that. And so, you know, it's really relative to your situation. Right. Um, like Pretty everything in life. idea, but uh, uh, they hurt no matter what. Yeah. Very, very, very relative thing. Um, I think that you uh, touched on a little bit, like, okay, the first time it's it's challenging because perhaps I'm feeling some shame that we got married and then we're getting divorced and there's maybe a stigma to it, but it gets easier and easier. Um, do you think that there's any kind of a relationship between if folks actually wait for marriage to have sex before they get married or they have premarital sex? You know, I, I, I'm uh, in a position that I am not able to um, uh, specifically relate with half of those people, the people that decide to wait. Um, so I'm not really clear on... The benefit of that, because I don't see a benefit personally, um, I'm sure there is, and I'm happy that they, <clears throat> I will agree with you that when you introduce um, sex to a relationship, it does make the relationship more complicated because you are now attaching a, a different set of emotions to the relationship, which well, can be good or bad. Right. Um, but, um, you know, there's a part of me that says, you know, I wouldn't walk into a dealership and buy a brand new car mm. without having driven Keep it. Tires, yeah. Jason uh, <laughs> And so, uh, you know, what if I drive the car off the lot and it falls apart? Uh, you don't want to buy a lemon, Jason. Right. So, don't want to uh, buy a lemon. I, I'm not sure that I'm a good person for that <laughs> question, but uh, I think that uh, um, I think you would find it hard to validate the statistics mm -hmm. on that. Well, theoretically speaking, it makes sense, right, from a societal control standpoint that that which drives many people, sex, to get that, I gotta, I'm going to do whatever it takes, right? So I have to wait until I get married, then that's what I'm going to do. Um, so from, again, a control standpoint, it makes sense to me why uh, the Catholic Church would say you need to wait till you get married. But using that logic... Are you getting married to have sex? And yes. if you're getting married to have sex, how good is the relationship? Because 
you're not even focused on the relationship or the person. You're just focused on actually losing your virginity. So I'm not quite sure that that is a formula for a long-term relationship. Now, if you have the conviction and dedication to wait until you get married to have sex, you may also have the dedication and conviction to stay in a marriage that isn't good for the rest of your life. Um, it's a terrible story, but I had an 87-year-old man that came in, this is several years ago, uh, that came into my office and wanted a divorce, and I was with one of my partners. And halfway through the uh, interview, uh, my partner looks at him and says, you're 87 years old. Why Why are you getting divorced now? And um, uh, I won't use his direct quote because we're recording this, but... Oh, you go uh, ahead. Uh, it, okay, his exact answer was, that bitch has made my life miserable for 47 years, and I won't die married to her. Wow. Um, <clears throat> and, and so... Romance, folks. You know, <laughs> he clearly had been holding a grudge for a long time. A really long time. And um, unfortunately, the, the sad part of the story is, he, died he did, in fact, die before oh, we got him divorced. no. Yes. Wow. I don't know what's worse. A Cub fan that waited 100 years and died before they won the World Series or, or that story <laughs> right there. So uh, keeping in mind with stories like that, can you give us kind of um, an example of something that's been really contentious that you've seen that you can tell us? Um, like give me like a really bad divorce. Uh, well, one of the things we didn't cover is um, in my practice um, – I tend to focus on and, and kind of have a niche in dealing with high conflict uh, custody cases. Okay. So I get, unfortunately, probably a disproportionate share of those kind of cases. Um, it's not unusual for me to end up with cases of allegations of abuse and neglect. And um, so I, I those are always difficult cases. You're always questioning whether or not the allegations are valid. In the end, uh, you never have the definitive answer. You can have all the evidence that will support one answer or the other, um, or both answers, um, but you never know the honest answer, and the only way to know that is if you're the person actually involved. But uh, um, those are difficult cases, and those get uh, uh, very emotional for lots of reasons, um, and uh, I, I can use a slightly less emotional case, but uh, just got done with the case involving a, a child that felt like his father was um, um, abusive, um, and the evidence doesn't show he was physically abusive, but more verbally aggressive, mm -hmm. and, and, but for whatever reason, that child, who was actually a teenager, um, felt like he was abused and didn't want to see his father and um, um, has been very resistant, even with court orders, to engaging with his father. And oh, wow. um, that is a, a difficult situation to be in. Um, and I've had lots of cases, not lots of cases, I probably have had a, a dozen cases where the child is rejecting a parent. And um, you get into... Uh, a term called alienating, where one parent is uh, aligned with the child and the, or the child's aligned with the parent and rejects the other parent because of that. Um, and you get a lot of behaviors that kind of feed into that and, and 
in essence, empowers the child to be making those decisions. Um, and, uh, you know, there's lots of theories out there about how to uh, potentially correct those. Um, but I will tell you from my experience, um, if you have a person who is adamantly set on not having a relationship, you really can enforce it. So that's uncanny to me. So if uh, a kid's, you know, 12, 13, and they're just like, I don't want to see my pop anymore. They, the kid has a right to do that. Nope, okay. absolutely not. And I apologize if I. Okay. Uh, so but if there's a, a an idea of like abuse or neglect or whatever, that there's an actual need for it. Well, there's a there's a, a few points in there, and so if you don't mind, I'm going to kind of jump off on one tangent, and then I'll come back to yours. Please do. Um, so there's a common myth out there that um, that uh, you know when a child is of a certain age, he or she gets to pick which parent they're with. Um, that is not true. You will hear people say that all the time. And I will tell you, the courts will not ever, one more time, ever let a child decide which parent they're going to live with, what their parenting time is. Now, the statute provides for them to provide their opinion as to what they want. But that is only one factor in a series of factors that the court has to consider. The Supreme Court has expressly said, said we're not going to put a child, they didn't say this, I'm kind of creating it for them, but in essence they said we're not going to put a child on the stand and have them look at their parents and say, I want you or I want you. That's not, that's not <clears throat> mentally, emotionally, developmentally good for anybody. Mm. Um, and so a child never gets to pick. What I am saying, though, is if a child is refusing, uh, uh, for example, if you have a child that is four, five, six years old and says, I don't want to go see mom, I don't want to go see dad. Well, you pick the child up and you put them in the car, right? Um, if you're going to force them to happen. That's assuming you as the parent are going to make that happen. There are parents out there that will not make that happen. They'll say, she doesn't want to see you, you're being a mean parent, he or she, because it happens both ways, why are you forcing her to do this? So, and right there, all they've done is supported the child in making that decision. And, mm. and, and you know, that's one thing at the age of, you know, younger ages where you still have control. But now you put that child as a 15, 16, 17-year-old man. Uh, and I say man because some kids are, you know, 6'4", 240 pounds. You're not picking that kid up and put him in the car. <clears throat> And pretty much he might pick up the car and move it himself. And so um, that's not always uh, feasible. But you have parents that will, uh, you know, call the police and the police will come and tell the child they have to go. Um, and um, you know, those are situations that occur. Those are situations that are not necessarily healthy. Um, and, you know, as a parent... Do you want to force the police to be the persons who bring your child to you? No. No, it's terrible. So it gets messy. That's a. I don't think that anybody likes an asshole attorney until they need one. That that's probably a, whatever the term for that is. It's a, a sort of a, a fun little saying. It's funny that you would say that. Um, as you mentioned, I, I work for uh, a firm, J. Berg Wilk, and. Jay Berg Wilk, if you happen to go on the website, I'm giving a plug here, has the Jay Berg Wilk Way, and, or it's actually called the JW Way. 
and in it, it has kind of the core principles of our practice. One of those is don't be a jerk. And you hear people say, I want a bulldog attorney. Mm-hmm. I want, you know, and there are people that come to you and they want a pound of flesh. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you, uh, I'm a little dating myself here, but Allie McBeal, there was a an episode where uh, it was a, a family law case and one of the attorneys is there without his client and the opposing attorney is there with her client in the first instance and um, the attorney with with the client is just reaming the other attorney out left and right and, and just being a real bulldog and uh, then you, you see them leave and, and you know she's like we're out of here and so, you know, totally controlling the environment. And then you see the next day, it's the other attorney with their client, and the lady's back without her client this time, and he's doing the same thing. So he's yelling at her and giving her the whole spiel, and, and essentially, then they leave, and the parties ended up resolving it, because all they wanted was an opportunity to take their aggression out. <laughs> um, so anyway, back to your question. Um, there are people that want an attorney to just be a bulldog. I think it is very bad practice. And I don't think that's what people really want because when you get into that, you're really not being effective. You're just driving up litigation costs. And at the end of the day, you have a limited number of resources, even if you're making millions of dollars a year. Do you really want to spend it on me? And I think that especially in situations where you have kids, the kids could use the money so much more than we could. So um, I, I think the there is a time in some litigation where you have to take a stand and, and you may have to advocate strongly for your position. Does that require you to be a jerk? Does that require you to be a bulldog? No. But um, uh, do you have to do that sometimes? Absolutely. But just doing it for the sake of doing it usually is not in anybody's best interest. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that certainly I agree with everything you just said. I wanted to go back a little bit. I'm 100% sure that Centauri understood your Allie McBeal reference. Yep. And I've never seen Allie McBeal just, just, just somewhere on the record Maybe there. Six-ish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You totally know that episode <laughs> for sure. Um, so I want to pivot a bit. Tell me, um, this is fascinating to me, law school, would you recommend that to someone right now? Um. Would I recommend law school to someone right now? Um, that's a really difficult question to answer, and it shouldn't be. Um, I love what I do. I really do. So um, for me, it is a perfect fit. Um, people look at me doing family law and say, you're crazy. Um, I enjoy it. Um, Part of my background is social work. I started off working with at-risk children. And um, I will tell you when I was doing that, I never envisioned. I didn't come into law thinking I was going to do family law. Um, But uh, through some lucky opportunities, uh, I ended up in this role, and and it fits me very well. Um, Now, I know I say all of that, but I have other friends that have gotten law degrees and and the practice of law has not fit them very well, and they've moved on to other things. Um, law school was very valuable and will teach you a way of thinking. 
Um, it will help you analyze situations. Um, it also will teach you a language. And so from those perspectives, a legal education is very valuable. Um, in this day and age, would I encourage somebody to become a lawyer? Um, I wouldn't say I would encourage. I wouldn't discourage it either. Um, I think it really is an individual uh, decision. It's funny because um, I was actually representing a, a doctor today. And while we were waiting for this process, because we kept getting a delay, we were talking and, and she has younger kids. And one of her children told her that he wanted to become a doctor. And I said, do you support that? And she said, I support that, but I think it's a bad idea. Hmm. And I said, well, why? A, a doctor, you know, what a better profession. And she says, medicine is changing so much that by the time he is practicing as a doctor, the, in her opinion, the area of medicine will be so much different that you won't even really be a doctor. Um, and so the idea of seeing clients and, and assessing them and having a conversation and getting to know them and then being able to treat them and make them better those days are almost gone now, according to her. And so, um, but, you know, so when you ask me about law school, um, I think it's a great education. I think it opens doors for people. It gives you a set of skills that not many people will have. Um, so it's a good education. Is the practice of law for everyone? Absolutely not. So as a means to an end, so you enter law school, um, the Atlantic did a good story on this. So you enter law school thinking that you will be a lawyer, but currently they, we're producing too many law professionals than there are law jobs. So from that standpoint, walk me through why would you join unless you have an idea of you want to go through law school for the education, which very few people do. They want to be a lawyer afterwards, but that, that's not an opportunity right now. So that, that really was the impetus of my question. Well, I'm going to take it a step further. I, I mean, uh, just because you get out of law school and you pass the bar... You're technically a lawyer, right. but we don't go to law school to just be a lawyer. Let's be honest. We go to law school because we want to make some money. You want and, 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 you know, um, your perception, um, I grew up uh, with a mother, single mother, that um, was earning roughly about 30000 a year. Um, and, and I never thought of us as poor. Um, but I never thought of us as rich. And, and so um, in my mind, when I got older and I could make 100000 a year, I'm thinking, I've made it, right? I've got three times what my mom's raising this family on. Rich. Um, uh, I will tell you, when you get to that point, it, it's not quite the same. Um, but answering your question, I'm off on a tangent. The, the question is, is um, once you are in a lawyer, you want to make money. If you go to a good law school, and first of all, an accredited law school, um, if you're going to a good law school and you finish well in your class, there will be opportunities for you to get the positions that will allow you to make that money. Um, but I can tell you the first job offer I had um, out of law school was um, for the uh, district attorney's office in the city of Philadelphia. And my starting salary is going to be $37,000. Um, 
let's just say I couldn't, I had a family at that time of, of two children with my wife at that point. Um, we couldn't live on that. And um, there are people that will start out with that. And, you know, I have a son now who is uh, 23 years old, and he's probably making about that now himself. Um, and he's a welder. So uh, right. he doesn't have all the uh, educational loans that uh, I uh, incurred going to school and getting my education. Um, so, yes, you can make some money. Are you going to get rich being a lawyer? Probably not. You'll make a good living and, and be able to feed yourself, yes. Um, but uh, it, it does become a, a big question. Um, there was a recent article. There's students that are attending a university here in town um, for law school that's paying roughly 50000 a year. Um, and most of them are not graduating in three years. So you, you're talking dollars to $200,000 for a legal degree that ultimately you get out and you can't get a job. And uh, it really gets difficult to justify the expense when you can't even make your student loan payment. Do you think it's ethical for that university to exist? Do I think it is ethical for that university <laughs> to exist? Rather, let me phrase it this way. Do you, think it's, <laughs> do you think it is good for a university to exist knowing that most likely the kids that are admitted to that school do not have the propensity to practice law? I'm not going to answer the question. <laughs> well, I will change yeah, the question slightly. Please. Um, there have been some lawsuits from law students that have graduated and have been unable to get a job, um, and they have turned around and sued their um, institution essentially for the cost of their education because they're not able to get a job that they believed would be available upon completing the program and getting the um, Makes sense. passing the bar. All of those cases, to my knowledge have lost the institutions of one you're not guaranteed a good job let alone a job um, the other problem that has um, been identified in those lawsuits and I can't validate those I'm just telling you what I've read and that is that the employment figures for the schools are inflated because not all of those jobs are legal and some of them are you know, you've got a job at Starbucks, not criticizing job. Starbucks, by yeah, the way, right. shout out to Starbucks for giving online uh, tuition to ASU. Um, so that's awesome. But, you know, you getting a job at Starbucks isn't what you went to law school for. Right, right, right. Well, there it is. <clears throat> Perhaps if those students who were suing were better lawyers, then they'd win. <laughs> wow. Centauri started it. <laughs> Well, let's, please. I was going to say, do you see a lot of, in your practice, um, you mentioned it before, but a lot of amicable divorces, people that are, that come to you and say, you know, we just want you to guide us through this, but we're fine, we're happy, we know this is the best for uh, us. Um, do I see a lot of them? Um, I wouldn't say I see a lot of them, um, but I do see a fair number of them. Um. But that also ties into the um, kind of the statistic I threw back to George here a few moments ago when we started 
that we as attorneys are only seeing about 8% of the cases. So a couple that is truly amicable may never come see yeah, us. Right, right, right. Um, now, I, I don't know that I would go so far as what you said. They don't need us um, because um, one of the things the, the public might not understand is only 50% of my practice is divorce. The other 50% is what we call post-decree work. So I'm cleaning up the things that should have been done in your divorce. Um, so, you know, I get the people coming back to, um, I had a, a great case that just went up on appeal uh, last year, and that was in their decree, uh, the, the husband was going to receive the house, but he had to refinance it within a period of time. And if he didn't refinance it, then... Um, essentially wife would take over and she would then get the house, right? Well, that's what the decree kind of said. And there's some question as to, so he was taking the house, so he was going to pay the mortgage, right? Well, when he wasn't able to refinance and she took the house, she was going to pay the mortgage, right? <clears throat> well, the decree didn't actually say she had to pay mm, the mortgage. And so her position was is that, you didn't refinance the house, I get the house, and you have to pay the mortgage. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, um, that mm. ended up uh, going all the way to the Court of Appeals. So um, I think that uh, even if you are amicable, you should have an attorney uh, at least look at your final documents to make sure you avoid those kind of complications. <clears throat> Do you think that fewer people are getting married these days? Mm. It's like, you know what? Absolutely. We're living together. We 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 love each other. Why bring the church and state into it? Kind of a deal. And, Completely agree. And what's the long term impact of that? Hmm. Uh, my opinion is great idea, but get a cohabitation agreement. What is that? A cohabitation agreement is essentially a prenup agreement between two people that are not getting married. Um, you sit down, and there's not a lot of people doing this, um, and I'm in the process personally of trying to make this more available to the masses, but the the reality is, is that you know more and more millennials specifically are electing to live together without ceremoniously getting married and having that piece of paper. Um, but unfortunately, they're still doing everything that they would do as a married couple. So they're buying houses, they're buying cars, they're making investments, they're doing other properties, but they don't really have the legal support yeah. that would go with the fact that you got married. And so, um, you know, you, you end up creating these expectations that may not be met when you decide this is no longer what I want. And so what a, a uh, cohabitation agreement does is says, all right, here's our understanding and here's our expectations. And so similarly to what you would do with a prenup is you would identify, you know, in the event that we get divorced, this is going to be mine, this is going to be yours, and this is going to be ours if we're going to even have an ours. Um, with a cohabitation agreement, you do the same thing as, you know, we're we're independent. You don't you don't have a community property, which Arizona is a community property state, so that once you get married, everything you do is joint. 
So if you make a dollar, that dollar is both of yours. Um, it's you, our dollar. Exactly. And if you're, well, never mind. Uh, and so if you're in a relationship that doesn't get married, then uh, in your cohabitation agreement, you could identify the fact that we're going to buy a house together and um, we'll jointly own it, even if one of the parties can't uh, necessarily get on the, uh, the loans in order to finance the purchase. <clears throat> All right, so you don't need to go through the whole <clears throat> big deal of getting married, but it gives you some framework for how things will work. Yes. It essentially round... says we're going to resolve our issues in advance. Okay. And I will tell you, hmm. and, and from a prenup standpoint or a cohabitation agreement, the biggest value is having the discussion. Because That's the truth. if people have the discussion, they can usually live with what they've agreed to. And you don't have the emotional outburst when all of a sudden, you know, you think you own half the house. And they said, no, it's in my name. I'm paying the mortgage. You don't have any interest. I bought all this IKEA stuff on my debit card. Yes. You don't get yeah. any of it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. Okay. So, all right. We will include in the show notes information on cohabitation agreements and how to get information on that. So, because I got to think that it's it's going to get more and more popular as the percentage stop percentage as the number of people that, 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 that go to church has been decreasing and decreasing and decreasing. And I imagine that the amount of people getting married is decreasing and decreasing, particularly with, with millennials and young folks. You still need to do planning um, or at least have these conversations. So, You know, it's amazing um, that the, the requirements to get married are so minimal. And, and I kind of wanted to ask you about it's like, it's a lot harder to get a driver's license than to get married, right? It, it really is. And, um, <laughs> and the reality is, is if, if you have some of these basic conversations before you do it, you can really determine whether there's some mm -hmm. uh, compatibility issues. Um, you know, when, when, when you sit down and you actually think about how we're going to be dividing things, it, it causes you to actually... Think about how you're actually acquiring things, mm. which we don't always do. And when you have those conversations, you also are uh, setting forth some expectations of where you're projected to be, which I don't know about you guys, but when I was in my 20s, the thought of where I was going to be in my 30, uh, I was just happy to get through the day. Right. And, and so uh, trying to think in advance and then having a conversation with somebody, uh, I truly think not only helps them now, but helps them move forward as a couple. Expectations are everything. I don't care what kind of relationship you're talking about getting into, but it's better to have those conversations up front, just like you said. So, And hard. It's hard to have those kinds of conversations, but so important. Sometimes they are hard, but uh, you know the reality is, is uh, George, me and you would be able to have a, a civilized conversation right now because I like you. You know, after you've had your affair and mm. and cheated on me, I'm I'm probably not going to be <laughs> right. as willing to it's sit down block. and talk to yeah. you and, and resolve our issues amicably. <clears throat> right. So I'm not even going to go to that place, Jason. 
So talk me, <laughs> Jason, walk me through, and I'm making you a therapist at this point, but going through the divorce cases that you've seen, what are some of those red flags that you you look, you think couples could look back and say, wow, we should have seen that coming by not having that conversation? Or what are some of the things? Is it two different spending habits? Is it one person likes to golf and the other person doesn't like to leave the house? Like, What are some of the things that you've seen that have really, really driven some of these divorces? Uh, I would say there's a combination of things. Um, I would say spending uh, habits is is a catalyst for uh, a lot of problems within a relationship. Mm. I would also say that a, a lack of planning um, for future uh, creates stress on a relationship. The bottom line is, is all of the financial things that become stressful to people will adversely affect the relationship because it's bringing more stress into the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything like spending, savings, or lack thereof. Um, the other big one is family. Uh, when I see a lot of times when people are getting divorced in January after the holidays and um, at least in my practice there's an uptick in filing in January and February okay and then in September and October so after the holidays after you've seen the in-laws for a week or two you're like, I'm never doing that again. That's I'm enough. I'm out. Yes. <laughs> Not another goddamn year of this. That's, I've heard that quote. <laughs> okay. um, I will never spend another damn holiday with that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so um, how you deal with extended family um, will have a tremendous impact on the relationship. That, no? You, you, you wouldn't guess no. that? I mean, I can't imagine hating in-laws that much. Maybe... <laughs> Hmm. There's all kinds. Money stuff, certainly. Family stuff. I know that uh, that my wife and I had a, a pretty deliberate conversation about religion and how we were going to raise our kids and all those things. So, again, getting expectations ironed out up front, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Well, the story goes. And religion is definitely one of those areas, but I will expand that to any um, kind of belief system that mm-hmm. a person has. Um, typically, in the beginning, there's some either acceptance of that belief system or, um, or unity in that belief system. And as people grow, their devotion to that belief system will change, either stronger or less or... Um, and so as a result of that, that will create tension down the road. I will say another, um, and, and it is not the cause of divorce, but it ends up being kind of the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, if you will, and that is involvement in social media. Um, it, it is really shocking, the, and I'm not seeing it as much over the last couple of years as I did probably the first five or six years I was practicing. Um, But the number of people that will get involved in, say, like Facebook and reconnect with people that they hadn't seen for years, Mm. and then all of a sudden 
that connection has developed and all of a sudden they realize the relationship that they're currently in isn't fulfilling for some reason. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, happens more than you would care to admit. And and it's kind of unfortunate. So social media is actually a problem. The other problem that I see with social media is even if it's just an innocent relationship, the fact that a, a one person will devote as much time as they do makes the other person insecure, which is probably just a, uh, a bigger issue. Of the relationship. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but social media exacerbates it. Absolutely. Yeah. People start to remember back to how awesome stuff was in high school <laughs> and they reconnect with folks. And We all want to live our high school our glory days. days. I, you know what? Jeez. Who's, who's, Do you who's see really an uptick in um, divorces or unrest as people enter retirement age? I set through um, 10, couple, or 10 questions couples should ask before retirement, and the, the person was going through that so many people don't have intentional conversations about, hey, we're both retiring or one of us is retiring, which means you're at home all day, I'm still working, what does that look like? You're want to spend money on buying a new house, and I'm still in the workplace, and we don't, we can't do that. But no one actually talks about that until they're right in the middle of it. Well, I mean, that is a perfect example of the same problem that people should have and do have in the front end. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, I mean, I get plenty of uh, uh, clients throughout my practice that say, you know, he's just always there now. And, uh, you know, it was fine. Never leave. He would go to work and work all day and he would come home and we'd have to spend a few hours at night and I'd cook him dinner and, you know, the house would be clean. But now he's there all the time. He's always breathing. He never goes away. Turns out I do not like him. Right. (laughs) Um, And uh, those are definitely conversations that you should have. Yeah, amazing. Um, And and right along those lines is, you know, when you retire, then you kind of get on. I hate to use the term because we're all kind of on a fixed income. We're not making any more money one week than the other, but you really are on a fixed income because you're relying on your retirement. You're relying on your pension or whatever you've you have accumulated. No, no other revenue, right? And um, and so if you if that's all you have and you haven't had the discussion, and one person thinks that you know we've got money to go on these trips and to travel, and and the other person saying. You know, this has to last us 20, 25 more years. We don't have that money. Um, that's going to create some tension. And mm-hmm. if you're not talking about that on the front end, um, if, you know, one person's thinking we're getting rid of the house and downsizing once I retire because, you know, I'm not going to continue making this mortgage payment. And the other person thinks this is going to be the house I die in. Um, you, you're you're going to see There's some tension yeah, and you're yeah. going to have some conflict. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Uh, expectations. So Jason, as our time is drawing to a close, how can people learn more about your practice? Or if they have questions, how can they get in touch with you? What else do you want to share? Uh, well, they can look me up on uh, Jayberg Wilk uh, website. They can, uh, I'm a uh, past president for Arizona Association of Family and Conciliation Courts. And uh, they can check me out on there as well. Um, they can also call my office anytime, 480, or actually 602-248-1076. Um, and uh, they can always shoot me an email. It's, the email address is on the website as well. 
Okay, and again, we'll have all Jason's contact information on there. Um, I think that, well, perhaps somebody's perception of calling and talking to an attorney is like, well, that sounds expensive, or he's going to charge me right away. Is, is that the case, or can people call you and have an initial conversation with you? The, the short answer is you contact our office. The first thing I have to do before I can talk to you, and it's not because I'm trying to be rude, and this goes for any attorney, they really should not be talking to you until they run what is called a conflict check. So as our state bar will tell you, when you are engaged with a client, you are developing what is called an attorney-client relationship. If I start talking to you and you give me confidential information about your case, I've now potentially created that relationship or expectation that there is a relationship. And so before I talk to you, I need to make sure that I haven't already talked to your spouse or um, some other party that may be involved in your yeah. case. And so uh, when you initially call me, more than likely, I'm going to ask you for your name and information, your spouse's name and information. We're going to have to call you back, but I've got to run a conflict check. I'm in a firm with uh, roughly 35 other attorneys. Your spouse or family member could have already talked to one of them, sure. and I don't want to create a problem. Okay. okay. So people are curious about it. They reach out. They go through that process, and, <clears throat> and it's transparent and obviously... Um, all expectations are met up front before you enter into a relationship. So, <laughs> Centauri, what else? Uh, it just hope I never have to see you like professionally. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> well, but if I do, I know you're the best. Actually, what 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 I would say is I'm not sure I agree with you because my understanding is that you are a bachelor, and so if you came to see me now, you'd be seeing me for a prenup, which right. means that you've found the love of your life. And you're ready to engage in the rest of I your like life that. and happiness. You're good at spinning. That's good. That's fantastic. I just think you were maybe paying attention during the whole conversation. No, I heard it. <laughs> All right, excellent. Jason, thank you so much. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show and tell a friend. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.